Welcome to Chase the Vase podcast, where we share stories about those who have fought to overcome addiction. Join us every Tuesday and Thursday for the latest stories, tools, and tricks to sobriety. Now, here's your host, Brock Bevel. Welcome to the Chase the Vase podcast. I'm just going to go with that. I'm blessed to have this amazing advocate of recovery, Angela Pugh. I just don't even know how to go about introing you to my people. I started doing some research a couple of days ago, and I'm just going to give some glimpses. And then if you want, you can kind of fill in some blanks. It's important that we know who you're, who we're talking to. So you're a podcast host of Addiction Unlimited, which is in the tops, right? One of the, yeah. one of the top podcasts for recovery. It is number one, if I'm not mistaken. Well, I have been ranked number one on some lists. You know, podcast statistics are fairly difficult. I am consistently a top 100 uh, in the self-help on the Apple charts. Amazing. You are a motivational speaker. I'm excited to hear that. I'm I'm excited when that comes out. You help men and women with Mm self-improvement, which is interesting because a lot of women only deal with women. So I'm, I'm happy to say that you will work with men, definitely an A-type personality. You work in the sobriety field, helping people. You're an entrepreneur, uh, are sober yourself. Mm-hmm. And from what I've seen is you started your career as an interventionist, right? <laughs> yes. That's, that's a hard right. word to say. So you started, <laughs> so you you found sobriety years and years ago. I don't, I don't really get into how much time we have sober just because I feel like one day sober is a feat in itself. I think we're badasses if we can get one year sober. Yeah, amen, amen. But what's interesting as an interventionist, you saw people on the ledge, right? When we talk about recovery, you saw them at the depths of it. For sure, yeah. Intervention is incredible work, you know, and it definitely takes a skill set, but honestly, I think it's more a personality style too, right? Because you have to be very fast. You have to be super calm, cool and collected. You cannot get thrown off your game easy. You cannot get emotional, right? Like because it's strategy and people wonder, you know, I get asked a lot like, okay, you're an interventionist and you're going to come in, but really all you're doing is having this conversation. So why can't the family have the same conversation? Like, well, dude, if the family could have the same conversation, this wouldn't be a job. You know, I mean, it's just not that easy because it is strategy. Every single piece of an intervention is strategy and it has to be laid out that way. And it's very carefully done. Do you know what job description you just defined? What? Being an undercover cop. For sure. That was my role. And I'm hearing you. I'm like, oh man, because you absolutely have to put yourself in that situation but you can't get too close. You can't, you can't lose control. You know, you have to be able to look at all the strategies, which is super neat. So, okay, here we go. First question I have for you. I'm new to recover. You pull me aside. Best piece of advice you would give me. Don't get hung up on the words. And I will explain that because Please. I know that probably sounds really out of left field, but don't get hung up on the words. I have so many people that want to get hung up on alcoholic or powerless or God, right? Like people want to get so freaking hung up on these words. And I'm like, you have zero understanding how unimportant those words are. I don't care 
if you don't want to call yourself an alcoholic, I could not possibly care any less because that's not the important detail. The important detail is that if you've got a messed up relationship with alcohol and it's running you a little more than you're running it, then you got to get it together. That's the important detail, right? It doesn't matter. The words mean nothing. Powerless, same thing. I hear that one a lot. People don't want to go to 12 steps because powerless and because the God thing. And, you know, first of all, it's not, I did a whole episode about this, powerless and powerful, because that word in the 12 steps in step one, that word powerless does not say you are a powerless loser, weak POS the rest of your life. It says you are powerless over alcohol. That's yes. all. That's it. This is not a lifetime commitment to being powerless. It's, all right. it's that I don't have power in this one thing. How about the word surrender? Because I believe, especially from a man's point of view, we hear the word surrender and it's really hard to understand that definition. It's really hard. I think for anybody, I feel like surrender is an advanced recovery word, you know, and I talk about this all the time. I sat in 12 step meetings for so long, literally feeling like I had no idea what anybody was talking about because of all the lingo in the words. Right. And they would talk about something like surrender. I'm like, what in God's name are these people talking about? Like, what is it? Because you don't get it. I mean, it's something that you come to understand as you go through the process, but I get it now. And I had it from day one, but I didn't know that then it just means like it says, you cease fighting anything and anyone, right? Like I'm not fighting it anymore. I'm like, okay, cool, dude. You won. Tequila, you won. Awesome. Now let's move on. You know, like how do I move forward from there instead of still fighting everything? When did you develop that maturity to where you could understand that it's just the words, but there's deeper meaning in it? I think I got a little obsessive about all the lingo in the rooms, in the 12-step rooms, because I felt like an idiot. I felt like I was sitting there every day having no idea what people were talking about. I started asking a lot of questions and I started thinking of different ways to say the same things, right? So now to me, all the shorthand, as I call it, you know, the one day at a time, live and let live, let it go. You know, all the the little one-liners, the cliches that, you know, can still sometimes drive me crazy. Now it's just shorthand because that's just a few words that I can say that have this huge meaning that is so powerful and makes so much sense if you understand it. So I just started figuring out other ways to say the same thing because especially talking to newer people, I wanted to be relatable. I didn't want to be speaking to them in a language they didn't understand. How long did it take you? And this is personal for me. I need a little therapy session, if you don't mind, Angela. How long did it take you to enjoy the AA process. And what I mean by that is I know a lot of times I would sit in there and I was so worried about what I was going to say when it was my turn, right? Because you're hearing other people share and they have great information and it's powerful. And then it comes to you and you're just like, man, am I that compelling, right? How, how long did it come for you to where you felt comfortable talking AA talk? Well, I'll tell you, you're never even going to believe this. In my very first meeting I ever went to, I heard a guy say, he introduced himself. I'm so-and-so. I'm an alcoholic. He goes, I'm just going to listen today. 
And I was like, yes, that's totally what I'm going to say. And that's what I said for about 10 years. (laughs) Literally, I never shared. And I know partially because exactly what you're saying. I mean, my thing was if somebody brought up a topic and immediately something struck me that I could share, like something relatable, then I would share. But I wasn't going to sit there as it was going around the room and like manufacture something to say. You know, I just don't, I'm not even that interesting to me. So I really wanted to just be quiet and I wanted to soak it all in. And I know sometimes people have sponsors that tell them to share in every meeting they sit in. And I know that has its place also. Like I understand that thought process. But for me, I just wanted to soak it in. I didn't have anything to say. I did not have a valuable thought that I could string together if you paid me a million dollars until I was probably a year sober. Then I could start really stringing some sentences together. But they still weren't that interesting or powerful. What's interesting, I'm hearing you. I'm hearing you. And I've been in a lot of these meetings And when the person says, hey, you know, I'm not going to share today. I'm like, all right, what's he hiding? He's got something. (laughs) Did he relapse? You know what I mean? All of a sudden, like that stinking thinking that we talk about starts playing a role. I'm like, who am I? You know, I have to take a step back in my own recovery and say, okay, where am I at if I'm starting to go? So, so that power play, you know? And so that that's uh, just a side note. That That's where my mind goes on that. I also sat in like the back row, which we refer to as relapse row. You know what I mean? So here I was showing up every single day. I was more committed than damn near anyone. Like I was not, you could not have paid me a million dollars to drink from the day I walked into my first meeting. Like I was done, but I sat in relapse row. I didn't get a sponsor and I never shared. People are like, she's going to relapse. It's inevitable. For sure. And I was a bartender, by the way. So let me let me read a quote, if you don't mind, that you posted. By the way, you are an incredible writer. I was intrigued by the way that you shared your story. But there was a part, and I want to ask you about it. And it said, in quote, this is Angela speaking. I got sober when I was 33. And being an alcoholic was the best thing that ever happened to me. My mind was blown because <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute. We never, we never think that way. You know what I mean? Like, cause we went through it and someone yeah. that's, that's been through recovery understands that was not the best time of my life. Right. right? I did not excel in that time of my right. life, but you put here, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Can you mind going into detail and sharing that? Sure. You know, the thing I don't, I don't get hung up on a lot of guilt and shame for my past. You know, certainly things I did when I was drinking. I'm obviously there's a whole bunch of stuff I'm not super proud of, you know, who cares? It's, I I was drunk. I was a disaster. That's not stuff I would ever do in my right state of mind, you know? So I don't, and I feel really blessed by that. You know, there might be something wrong with me. I'm not sure, but (laughs) because a lot of people really struggle with things they did under the influence. And I just never had that because I understood like, it honestly is like a whole entirely separate human being. And when I look back on that time of my life, it makes me really sad because I was so broken. Just as a human being, I was so broken. You know, I had so much untreated trauma. I had, and nothing crazy, like I talk pretty openly about trauma, but I like to point out because so many people hear that word trauma and they think, think combat, sexual assault, near-death experience. I didn't have those things, right? I had about 10 million 
smaller traumas, right? And trauma is accumulative. The little it, cuts, it, little right? cuts, yeah. It piles up and, and those other things are equally damaging. So I had a ton of, of unresolved trauma and my self-esteem was zero. I treated myself terribly. I allowed other people to treat me terribly. And my life was just a chaotic mess. And had I not been an alcoholic, I never would have been propelled to fix those things, right? I never would have been led to a place where I could go sit for free every single day of my life. And I could be a total F up that couldn't put a sentence together to save my life. And those people loved me anyway. They taught me the greatest lessons of my life. My sponsor taught me a new perspective. He taught me how to love myself. He taught me how to recognize when other people loved me and when their motives weren't so pure. He taught me how to grow up as a human being. So when I think about being an alcoholic, had I not been an alcoholic, I never would have landed in that room. And I never would have had all those blessings. And I never would have gotten to be who I am today. I mean, I'm 48. It took me to well into my 40s before I could say that I love myself, that I respect myself as a human being. And I love who I am in this world. I couldn't even dream of saying those words back then. Wow. So when the, originally you said when you were initially in recovery, you were in the halls. You didn't get a sponsor. You sat in the back row. You didn't share. At what point in time did you engage? Did you get this sponsor? Did you put into recovery? So I was always committed from day one. But what happened is there were three guys in my meeting. I got sober at a noon meeting. And there were three guys there that were like, my main dudes. Like I could not wait to get there every day at noon and let them know I was still sober mm. every day. You know, all of them were very different. They had different personalities and they shared in different ways, but they had incredible knowledge and incredible life knowledge. They were sober 20 and 30 years when I got there and they were still there every day. So I kind of made a little mental note like, oh, okay, 20 plus years still sitting in this chair every day. And one of them, is who I wanted to be my sponsor. But as most of us in 12 Steps know, that really the guidelines are women work with women and men work with men. And there are very good reasons for that, for sure. Uh, I didn't know that then, but I certainly understand it now. So nobody knew that that's who I wanted to be my sponsor. I just kind of took a step back because that's who I wanted to be my sponsor. And it was a male. And I was told that we don't do that, right? So we became fantastic friends and I would always sit by him at our Saturday night speaker meeting. And I was 10 months sober and I came in one night and I had a book about the steps. And he's like, what's that? And I go, well, it's a book on the steps. I said, I figure if I'm going to sponsor myself, I want to do it right. And he started laughing. He looked at me and he's like, I'll be your sponsor. And I go, what? I go, I thought we couldn't do that. He's like, you need a sponsor. I'll be your sponsor. Oh my gosh. He never even knew that he, that I wanted him to be my sponsor the whole time. And he said later that the only reason he did it was because he saw me working so hard. He saw me showing up every single day. He knew I was serious and he didn't want me to be a person that was really doing a lot of work and trying really hard, but kind of falls through the cracks because of a guideline like that, right? We had very strict boundaries from the beginning. You know, obviously we always meet in public. There's no going to each other's houses like you do a lot in other sponsor relationships. He said, because he was married, right? From 
decades and had kids and, and their family church was the church where our AA meeting was. And he said to me, he said, we will never do anything that will give anyone any reason to talk. And I was like, perfect. I'm down with that. Wonderful. Greatest, greatest experience of my life. What's interesting is not everybody has that same experience with with older, right? I want to say older people because they're usually they're usually the ones that are the dry drunk. I, I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't. <laughs> so many. But you see those guys that have 30 yeah. years and they are just unhappy. And they're the ones that kind of make recovery difficult for a newbie, right? To come in yeah. and sit because they're very strict. I remember I wasn't an alcoholic. There wasn't any alcoholic anonymous meetings. So I would go and I said, hey, I'm Brock. I'm recovering opiate addict. And after the meeting, he asked me not to come back. Yeah. I wasn't an alcoholic and I didn't fit in that meeting. And I was really taken back. I was shocked. Yeah. I was shocked too when I learned that about the program, you know, and especially because my group, you know, my home group is still the same today. It is my home. It is my safe place. I love it there. You know, I don't go to as many meetings today as I used to. Uh, I I don't think I missed a meeting my first five years. I was in that room every single day of my life and sometimes a couple of times a day. But I had so much respect for that place and it was such a sacred space for me. And when I started working with addiction and I would have have people who were drug addicts, of course, I wanted to bring them to my safe space because it was such a lifesaver for me. And, you know, I'm a little obstinate like all of us are, but I'm not a timid female either, right? So if somebody steps in my business, I will be the first one to let them know they're not welcome there. And I had a couple of situations with some old timers when I would bring somebody to a meeting and they would get a little crappy with them. And, you know, if you want to publicly humiliate my friend, I'm going to publicly humiliate you right back. And you know, Man, that's, yeah. a, that's addiction coming out. Don't trigger my inner five-year-old because I promise you he's just below the surface. Right. He'll fight. He'll fight. <laughs> yes. So I know that you got into becoming an interventionist in what, 2006, 2007, pretty early on? 2000, about 2008. I got sober okay. in 2006. I mean, it was about 2008 that I started really where I shifted my focus to figure out what you have to do to be an interventionist. You know, and I am a type A overachiever. I don't do anything halfway. So I didn't just want to be an interventionist. I wanted to be one of the best interventionists. And that's what I set out to do. You know, I wanted to know everything about it. I wanted to understand every piece of it and why. And I wanted to understand the communication because there's a different communication style that is more effective with addicted people. Um, So yeah, I started studying all of those things. So when and how did you find your purpose in recovery? Because we talk about in recovery, the four pillars, right? Home, health, community, and purpose. And you've already talked about that your community was these three guys in AA. I mean, they were fulfilling that need, which is really cool. But you also had to promote that purpose. And And I feel in recovery, this is what a lot of people are missing, right? And they just don't have, like they get out of recovery and they're like, what do I do now? Yeah. So how did you find and fuel your purpose? You know, like everything else, it just evolves at its own pace, right? Like I couldn't tell you. So I knew pretty early on because my sponsor, well, two things. One, I have to back way up. When I was 26 years old, I lived in Los Angeles, right? My whole 20s, I lived in LA and I was a bartender all over Hollywood and Beverly Hills. And I dated a guy for a period of time who was at that time 16 years sober. And he was super active in the 12-step community. Now, I didn't know. I was like 24 or 25 or something. I didn't 
understand the ins and outs of alcoholism and addiction. I didn't know anything about it. I thought he was fantastic. And he had a business partner. They had a coffee shop that catered to the sober community. And it was right on Sunset Boulevard. And it was awesome. And that's where we would hang out, right? So I was just always around these sober people. So when I got sober, that was the first thing I thought. I was like, oh my gosh, I would love to have a sober people coffee shop because it was so cool, dude. They were open till four in the morning. They had a jukebox in the back and a pool table and everybody just hung out as sober people. It was amazing. So that was my first thought. Then I recognized my sponsor, like every time that dude's phone rang, it was somebody in the program and everything he did was about sobriety. So when I was probably, I started working with him when I was 10 months sober. So probably somewhere around my year, maybe a little after that, I had the conscious thought, like, that's what I want my life to be like. I want everything I do to revolve around sobriety and recovery. But I couldn't have picked then like what I'm doing now. You know what I mean? Like I couldn't foresee that. So it really was its own journey. I mean, I woke up at 37 with a little identity crisis and kind of freaked out. What am I going to do? I don't want to be a bartender the rest of my life. I ended up in college. Like I had never for a moment of my life considered college. And I went at 37. And then that Mm. was a whole bunch of its own hurdles that didn't work out. And, you know, I ended up doing addiction counseling and then I went to social work school and then I said F them and I studied neuropsych and because psychology is really my thing. It just has evolved as I have been open enough to let it evolve, you know, but none of it was necessarily planned. I just knew I wanted everything I did to revolve around recovery. And I was so excited about the person that I was becoming that all I wanted to do is help other people do that same thing. Cause I was absolutely shocked at the fact that I could be a good human. I love that. So at what point, Angela, did you realize that recovery takes as much effort as it took an addiction? No, this is rough. People, they talk about being sober and they think all I'm going to have to do is go to AA and I'm going to be, I'm going to be healed. And people don't understand how much dang work it takes to get sober. Yes. Yes. And you realize how little it really has to do with not drinking. Mind over (laughs) mental, right? (laughs) There's this whole piece of the game that opens up and you're like, wait a second, this doesn't have anything to do with not drinking anymore. Because yeah, you have to heal all that underlying stuff that made you want to drink, right? Like everything I wanted to drink to drown out, I then had to really face and figure out because I couldn't drown it anymore. So now we're sober no no substances and everything starts to surface and i think that's where the work begins right it's like uh that those character weaknesses start showing up i became agitated irritated angry mad i'm like whoa who's this guy as long as i was on opiates i was i was cool i was the life of the party had fun everything but as soon as i stopped i'm like oh I'm kind of an asshole, right? (laughs) And you have now, where do you start? How do you start working through this trauma and this crap that you created? Well, lucky for me, I was always kind of an asshole. So that (laughs) was not a big shock. (laughs) Actually, one of the first things I did have to work on was my temper. That was one of my first, you know, probably in my second year that I was like, okay, I've got to get my temper under control because I was mean. I was angry. You know, I had a ton of resentment. I was super condescending. And uh, 
and I could lose it pretty quickly on people. So that was something I had to figure out pretty early on, but I was not ever mad about being sober. You know what I mean? Like I never missed my old life. I was not a person who spent the majority of my early sobriety looking back, being sorry that I missed my old life or my old friends or whatever. I was having so much fun in my sobriety that like it never even dawned on me to look back, right? I never felt like I was missing out on anything because I was building this new life that was so much fun. But that's because I got involved. You know what I'm saying? That's because I went to AA and I went every day and I made friends and I went and did things with them. And sometimes all we did is we meeting hopped, you know, like I would go to a 5 30 PM Friday night and I would meet some of my friends there and we'd leave there and we'd go to a 9 PM somewhere else. You know, like that was fun. We had a freaking blast, you know, we'd go have dinner or, you know, breakfast at 1 AM after we got out of the midnight meeting, you know, it was just fun. And that's because I got involved. I was in that mode of surrender. I wasn't fighting it. I wasn't mad about having to go there. I wasn't freaked out about whatever the stuff was. And I had plenty of people talk to me about God. And I was just like, oh yeah, good for you. That's fantastic. It's not my thing, you know, but it's also not my place to judge what anybody else is doing in the room. And as my sponsor would say, Angela, whatever that person is doing in their spare time is none of your effing business. Excellent points. You posted uh, on Instagram a quote that I want to talk to you about. It says, be gentle. You are meeting parts of yourself you have been at war with. Yeah. Right? So can you, because, uh, and I think this is where, when we stop using, this is when the war begins. Yeah. So can you give me a little bit on that one? Because I think that we're at war with that old identity. You know, it is very hard in a split second to step from one identity into a whole new identity. And I was, for many years, the drunk. I was the drunk person. And I wasn't even a super crazy drunk. You know, I was very high functioning. I had a beautiful life. I lived in the right zip code and I drove the right kind of car and wore the right clothes. I had all that stuff, but I was so broken on the inside. And when you decide to get sober, all of a sudden you're stepping into this whole new identity that you're not familiar with and nobody believes you that that's you. And you don't even believe yourself, right? So how do you transition from the old identity to the new identity? Uh, Certainly not gracefully, you know, (laughs) because you've so been at war with yourself about who you are. And now you desperately want to change yourself and there's no quick fix. So where do you begin? Where do you begin? I know everybody's journey is different. Yeah, it's, it's easy though to just to not have the next drink, but not that it's easy, but it's fairly easy. You know, you understand, like, don't take the next drink, don't take the next pill, whatever. Okay, cool. Well, then what the hell do I do with the rest of the hours in my day? (laughs) The time. Yes. It's like, okay, not taking the next drink or the next hit. That's like four seconds. Like, what do you do after that? And that's the important stuff, right? That's the important stuff. And it doesn't have to be crazy, super time consuming. Listen, you don't have to go to two meetings a day like I did, but I'll tell you what, you better do something. If it's important to you and you want to grow it and build it and make it strong, then you better freaking do something every day. What would you offer up? What what other suggestions other than attending meetings? How can somebody fill this time? 
Well, for me, it's all self-improvement, right? So I started looking at those little pieces of myself that I wasn't thrilled with, like my temper. And I started figuring out, like, how do I change my temper? The first thing I had to do is get myself to keep my mouth shut. When I wanted to lash out at somebody, I had to just stop and be quiet. And that's what I started learning about, right? It's just self-improvement. Improvement. And that's why I say too that the not drinking and not using really is the tiniest piece of the equation because all the rest of it is really getting yourself together and understanding who you are. You know, start focusing on what feelings are and what they're telling you, right? If you have some anger and resentment, that's an indicator that you've got some forgiveness to do with yourself and with other people, right? Like start learning that stuff instead of where we want to panic about feelings and go, oh my God, I'm feeling, what is that? I did not approve that. Make it go away. Stop it right now. And that's where we would immediately go for a substance, right? Well, now I got to understand that stuff and I have to understand how it affects my behavior and what behavior that do I not like because I need to fix that. I want to feel good about myself. I didn't get sober so I could continue to feel like shit about myself and be a bad human. You know, like I want to feel good about me. That's where your time goes. Figure yourself out and start making those corrections. You know what? That's depth right there. I appreciate that, Angela. And and I noticed that on the onset, we we start getting a little bit of traction. We stop using and all of a sudden, we start getting that confidence back, and we want to fix everything overnight. We want to make all those amends overnight. We want to make everything in our life perfect again. What, what would you speak to someone who's listening that that understand that timing is everything? Well, you don't have any control over it. You will fix things as the universe throws them at you on its schedule. Like it just doesn't have anything to do with you. You know, like I talk about four years sober, I had my relationship rock bottom, right? Four years sober, I found myself dating one of the worst people I've ever dated because I chose my whole dating life. I chose a certain type of guy, right? Just because I got sober, 20 years of habit didn't magically change overnight. Say that again, because that's huge. Say that again. Which part? 20 years of habits didn't what? (laughs) Didn't change overnight. Yeah, imagine that. Isn't that crazy? So I'm sitting there four years sober. I've really got my act together. I'm in college now. I'm making money. Like I'm crushing it. And I am dating literally the worst guy I've ever picked. You know, I hope he's listening. Drug addict, alcoholic, you know, because that's the guy that I picked. Super successful. I love that personality and charisma. And he had all that stuff, right? So that was my relationship rock bottom is sitting there going, okay, this is bizarre. Like I've done all this work on myself. Like, why am I still picking this guy? Because that's a self-esteem issue. Yes. Because if I felt good about myself, I wouldn't Mm. be picking a bad guy. So I sat and I made a list of all the qualities I wanted in my dream guy. And then I made a list of my deal breakers, like just a few things. What are the absolute deal breakers that you won't deal with? Give me the top two. I need to hear it. For sure. Addiction, right? Any kind of addiction, um, active addiction. Like obviously I don't mind somebody in recovery, but active addiction for sure. Narcissism. Okay. And, and just a general unkindness. Those are deal breakers for me. But yeah, so I made this list of all the qualities of my dream guy. And as I read down the list, I realized I was not a single one of those things. And I was like, now, wait a minute. How can I expect my imaginary dude to bring all this to the table if I'm not bringing it to the table? Like, that's not fair. So then 
my whole thing shifted, my focus shifted to become everything on that list for myself, right? You don't seek it in another person. That's what we do as addicts. We're always seeking the outside something to change how we feel on the inside. I have to be able to manage that for myself, right? So that was my relationship rock bottom. Some years later, I had a financial rock bottom where, because I never, I was a bartender my whole life. I made a lot of money and I never had to be responsible. So all of a sudden now I'm adulting and living on more regular people money and I had no skills, right? I had no financial skills. I was super irresponsible. So that was another rock bottom moment I had. So none of it had anything to do with me or my planning, right? It was just me living my life and the universe throws something at you. You just have to be smart enough to pay attention, right? And go, oh, dang, now I need to do some work on this. So you are an expert in recovery. You're a recovery coach and you have this toolbox you talk about and, and, and that you specialize in and you have, you have people that are listening in right now. They're attentive and they want to know what your best tool. They want to know what your best tool is for them in recovery. Oh, it's got to be connection. I think connection is the number one thing because people are so afraid to say that they have this issue, right? Whatever you want to call it, alcoholism, addiction. I respond to any, you could call me anything. I don't care about any of the words. You can call me whatever I respond to all of it. But people get so hung up on the shame of it, right? And that's that's really the most damaging part. It's There's a difference between being private and being secretive, you know? And I did a whole episode about that too, because it's okay to be private and kind of protect your details. Like just because you have an alcohol or drug problem and you're getting clean, you don't have to go start a podcast like I did. You can be private, that's okay. But it's different when you're secretive. When you're secretive, you have shame around it and you don't want to share it with people because you you feel bad about it. And that's what keeps you hidden. Addiction needs a couple of things to thrive. It needs you to be isolated and alone, and it needs you to feel like crap about yourself. That's how it thrives. So those are the top two things that you got to pay attention to. Do not ever be isolated and alone. Addiction is a predator. It is a textbook predator. So you don't want to put yourself in that situation, right? Be connected. Again, you don't have to tell the whole world, but you got to have a few people in your inner circle that know what's up and know what you're doing. I have never heard it said like that. I love that. I'm going to if it's okay, I may steal it because I love that. <laughs> Addiction's a predator. Like It's a predator. You gave three things. Isolation, being alone, and feeling crap about yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And that is so true. You know, alcohol is a depressant, right? That's why when we stop drinking alcohol, we start taking sugar, it hits the same receptors. Totally crazy. You are amazing. And I appreciate it. (laughs) If you don't mind, I want to end with one question for you. You kind of hit on it a second ago, but I think it's really important. How vital do you think self-worth is in someone's recovery? It is vital that you are always working on it because it's not something that's ever finished, right? I've come a long, long way, but I promise you I got a long way to go. So it's not a job that's ever done. And, you know, to life, you're taking hits from life constantly. So where, you know, my self-worth can get really good in business, then it might start falling somewhere else, right? In relationships or friendships. Maybe I'm being a crappy friend, so I got to get over and do some work over there. Maybe I have a business deal go bad or not work out the way I wanted it to. Then my self-worth is going to take a little bit of a hit there and I got to get over there and do some work. So it's never done, but I think it is crucial 
that you are always working on it and you are always doing little things to care for yourself, to prove to yourself that you love you. Last book you read. It is uh, Mark Manson. He is amazing, really great guy. He's not an addiction guy, uh, but he's super smart. He's got really good stuff and he's very direct like like I am. So I really appreciate him. Yeah, he's great. So Angela, if if people hear this and like, I need to talk to her, I want to follow up with her. She's amazing. I love her approach to recovery. I may have to sign up for your course because I I, I love the the connection and addiction's a predator. Hopefully that's chapter one, you know, but uh, how do they get a hold of you? I would say the best way to find me is any of the social media platforms. You know, I'm obsessed with Instagram at Addiction Unlimited, which is the podcast. I'm on everything as at Addiction Unlimited. And the toolbox is myrecoverytoolbox.com. That's a great place to find some free resources and uh, connect with me too. Good. Uh, print it out. Print it, go, go to the toolbox, print it out, use it in your <laughs> life. I'm serious. Like that's what people don't understand. You got, you got to get information. You got to gain knowledge to stay sober. And I think that's the enemy of sobriety is loneliness and just sitting there not doing anything. Right. Lead, follow, or get out of the way. Yeah. Yeah. And we love to obsess about all the negative things, you know, and, and romanticize the drink as we call it. And this is something I just did a five day go dry challenge for January. And this is something I talked about in that was romanticize your sobriety. Like stop thinking about the stupid drink, right? Like romanticize your freaking life and like what you can create and all the things you can do and the person you can be and the parent you can be and the partner you can be, the employee, the son or daughter. I mean, romanticize your life. Like who cares about the drink? Don't get stuck obsessing in the problem, get in the solution. So if someone wants to start their sobriety, what what would you feel is the first step? Connect. You have to get a tribe, you know, you have to get a tribe. And the beautiful thing is online, you can really be kind of a lot more anonymous because people are all over the world online, but there are so many communities that you can be a part of, even if you are passively a part at first, right? And just reading people's comments and seeing people's posts, just to start gathering that information to realize too, that you're not alone in this. Like people are so shocked. They're not the only one. And I remember feeling that too. I thought I was like the worst human on the planet. I was the worst alcoholic that ever lived. I was the biggest piece of garbage. And I got in the rooms of 12 steps and I was like, oh, well, dang, I'm not that bad. Isn't that the best part? You're like, yeah, it's like, I'm okay. Yeah, I'm okay. But that's hugely important. You have to realize that you're not alone. Like we all go through this stuff. Every single one of us was petrified to walk into our first meeting. Every one of us was petrified to post our first thing on social media about sobriety or recovery or whatever. We've all been in those spots. So we have, we get through it together. We have to do it together. Yeah. What did 2020 teach you about your recovery? It reinforced, I'm really an introvert and I really don't need to leave the house much (laughs) because 2020 for me, quarantine was not much different than regular life for me, honestly. I am such kind of a hermit and I mean, I'm an entrepreneur, you know, so I'm kind of always at my house buried in my computer, whether it's coronavirus or not. That's kind of my gig. Love it. You're yeah. amazing. Angela, thank you so much for your time, your your devotion to recovery. I, and honestly, I, I hope we continue to develop a relationship. I know that everybody that listens to this is going to be enlightened. They're going to be and instructed. They're going to be educated. So thank right. you so much. 
Thank you. This was so much fun. I I love doing this kind of thing. And, you know, I'm glad you reached out. You have been a breath of fresh air too. And I appreciate your approach and everything you're doing. So thank you. Thank you. Keep chasing the base. You've been listening to Chase the Vase Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Anchor, or Apple Podcast to get new, fresh weekly episodes. For more information, please follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook, or visit our website, chasethevase.com. Until next time, keep chasing the vase.